So we finished the section on the close application of mindfulness to the body in the wisdom chapter of Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. So you might think I'm out of material. Not me. I thought I'd give a story that many of you probably heard. It's always nice to hear again. And whether you take it literally or metaphorically or sheer poetry or a lovely superstition, I don't care. It's your choice. But it's Shantideva coming from a princely family, royal family, making his way to Nalanda, wasn't it? Pretty sure. Nalanda. Yeah? Pretty sure. So he was at this great monastic university, like Harvard or Cambridge, like the Sorbonne. It was really the the apex of education, I think, for all of, probably all of Asia at that time, 8th century, 7th, 8th century. So here we have all these industrious monks, this tremendous array of knowledge. The, it's just like a mandala, extraordinary system of, of education that His Holiness is so strongly prom- uh, promoting nowadays. But here he is in this incredible center of learning, and from all of the, his fellow monks, it looks like he's the, the big goof-off. He just seems to, they said he did three things. He ate, he pooped and peed, and he slept. He seemed like that's all he did. He just was a carouser, a, a no-goodnik, you know? And so they were kind of getting fed up with him. They, ju- they just didn't see him doing anything else, just hanging out, a loafer, you know, really. So they're kind of getting fed up with him. But they needed an excuse to kick him out. And so it occurred to them that it was part of the monastic routine that on a regular basis, one of the monks would be asked to give some kind of a public presentation. Uh, so they figured, okay, we'll get him there, because the guy obviously doesn't know anything. So we'll, we'll put him on the spot. He'll be so embarrassed, he'll decline. And then we can say, if you decline, then he can't stay here, because that's part of the monastic responsibility. So have a nice day, loaf someplace else. You know? And so they came to him and said, well, we, we'd like you to give a public, a public presentation, lecture. And uh, so he turned to him and said, well, what would you like? Would you like an original composition, or would you like me to recite some sutra that I've memorized? Give us an original one. <laughs> Knock yourself out. You know, they, they were sure he couldn't do it. How could he possibly? The guy sleeps, eats, and poops. You know, what up, you know. And so, so the, the, it's all set up. He's supposed to give now an original composition. And all they see is doing sleeping. And so the day comes. Well, these monks, I think, kind of really had it out for him. Because they really wanted to get him out. They wanted to humiliate him, so they'd get him out quick. And so when they prepared the day for him to get him, come and give a lecture, to the this monastic community. I mean, this is like giving a presentation to the Harvard student body. It's a big deal. Uh, they, made a, they made a throne for him, a really high one, almost like sarcasm, really high, and with no ladder. It's like, you know, six, eight feet tall. Like, go for it, you chump. <laughs> you know? like he just, they just really want to humiliate it. I think they really had it out for him. And so the day came, Shantideva approaches this great big throne, and the, 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 you can just imagine the monk going, <laughs> you know, smirking back and forth. They must have been, right? They're human beings. And so Shandadeva approaches the throne, and then they suddenly see him up on top of the throne. And they, they never saw how he got up there. It was just like, well, how did he do that? And so he's up on the throne. And then he starts giving a Dharma talk. Well, the Dharma talk that he gave was a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life that he gave just free-flowing right from his, heart to his, from, from his heart to his mouth and out it flowed. And it's, in, it's anybody who reads Sanskrit, 
It's exquisite Sanskrit. It's, it's poetry. It's beautiful poetry, much better than any English translation. You just can't do it. It's metered. It's, it's fluid. It's poetry. It's literature. It's profound. It's spiritual. It's wise. It's incredibly benevolent. But it's beautiful also. It really is poetry. And so this exquisite masterpiece is just flowing from him spontaneously there. And the monks are and some of them are starting to take notes real quickly, you know, like, man, oh man, you didn't see this one coming, you know? So they're writing their notes down. And then it's, it's a rather long text. It would take probably an hour or two to read through. He gets to the wisdom chapter. There are 10 chapters. The wisdom chapter, the ninth chapter is a wisdom chapter. Then there's the final chapter of dedication of merit, you know? Uh, and so he comes to the wisdom chapter. And, and that's where our text here is located. All about the perfection of wisdom, of course. And then as he's reciting it, then their jaw started to drop even more. Now, this is the story. I take it literally. You can take it any way you like. He started to just elevate above his throne, the Dharma throne. He just started to hover. And he continues to recite the ninth chapter, the wisdom chapter. And then he just starts to hover like a helicopter, just slowly higher and higher and higher. And he continues to recite. And the monks are taking <laughs> taking notes, you know, but his voice is getting fainter and fainter. And, and he literally, did anybody see Angels and Demons, that movie, where the helicopter just goes up and up and up and up and then kind of just vanishes? Well, it was a what, movie done by um, Dan Brown's book, but it's a nice image. But there he was. He was a human helicopter with no blades. He just went straight up, straight up, until it gets towards the end of the book and they, can't, they can hardly hear anything. It's so distant. And then he just disappears into a dot and vanishes. The monks were rather surprised. And said, they might have think we might have misjudged him. <laughs> and so now they're just desperate. We've got to find this guy. This guy's a Mahasiddha. He's a poet. He's a scholar. He's a contemplative. He's incredible. We want to keep him here forever. But he just disappeared into a spot. That's <laughs> so they're running all over the place looking for him. And, you know, they're scurrying. They've got to get him back now. They want to sh shower him with praise and honor and so forth and so on. And uh, he just disappeared. But he left one text behind. And legend, legend has it that he even took off the outer accoutrements of a monk and just took on the guise of just a, a wandering ascetic, a shramana, so in, invisible, incommunicado, and just traveled around India. He just disappeared from history. But there's one story of him, just only one story that I know of, and that is that he took up residence in a cave and was meditating there. And this, the surrounding villagers saw that wild animals of all kinds would go into the cave. They'd just be drawn to it, through there. But then they wouldn't come out. <laughs> and so they thought, so of course they had their own thoughts, this guy is eating all the animals, you know. <laughs> they come to the cave and he, he's chowing, chowing down on them, you know. <laughs> and so they think, this is really awful. This is, this is supposed, to be, supposed to be a holy man and he's just telling the town there's a big carnivore. <coughs> so they, they launch into, you know, complain. And then they find all these animals just gathered around him, like St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, they just, they just wanted it to be in his field. That's the only story we have. But... When he learned that these monks really desperately wanted him, wanted him back to come and teach at Nalanda, uh, he said, no, that time's passed. Uh, but here's one text. He left one text behind. He said, well, this will be your teacher. And then he disappeared from history. And the one text he left behind 
was Shiksha Samuchai. It's a compendium showing extraordinary erudition. I mean, it shows that he knew all the sutras. But he also had this splendid kind of mosaic, this mandala of the nature of the whole Bodhisattva way of life. Uh, and so this was the more elaborated version, the, the shorter version, the guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. And I think he maybe, I can't remember now, I think he might have left a copy because by the time he got to the 10th chapter, they were hardly hearing anything and they wanted to get a complete copy. So I think they got a complete copy of that. But he left behind this Shikta Samachaya, composed it in his spare time. Left it behind and said, okay, that'll have to do. And then he just disappeared. We don't hear anything more about him in history. Right? But the larger text, the Shikta Samachaya, or Compendium of Practices, uh, that he just composed two texts, as far as we know. This is the second one. And in terms of Western translations, it was translated by uh, a man named Bendal about 80 years ago. Long, well, frankly, in terms of modern Buddhist scholarship, it's a long time ago. And so it's, it's rather beautifully written, but also a lot of inaccuracies. Uh, the, the Tibetan lamas were in, uh, unavailable back then, 80 years ago. And so a lot of things, I think, the trans, I think there were two translators. Uh, Bendal was one. Uh, they, they just didn't understand the meaning. They, and why, how could they? They had no one to consult with. And so that text really is severely in need of a new major translation all the way through. Um, nobody's gotten to it yet, but it's a classic, well-known in the Tibetan tradition, although not that commonly taught. And so there's a wisdom chapter there, in, of course, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to the four applications of mindfulness. So I've done, I'm doing a fresh translation just for you all of just that one section. Okay? So for the first time in English, a new translation that I think is pretty accurate. Okay? So this is chapter 13. You can get the Bendal translation on Amazon, or that's probably the only place you can get it. Uh, you can see the older translation. It's quite lovely in many respects, sometimes written in Ch King James English, which is charming. Uh, and so this is chapter 13, and it's on the four close applications of mindfulness in the Shikha Samajaya by Shantideva. So there it is. So it's right in the midst of the wisdom chapter, just as in the A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, or Bodhisattvatara, the four applications of mindfulness explanation is also in the midst of the, the wisdom chapter. So, we now turn to this text. We did the short version, the concise version. Now we go to the elaborate version. Okay? Clear? This one's about 10 pages long, by the way, this, this section on the four applications of mindfulness. And the other one was about three pages that we finished. That is, we finished just the, 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 um, the body section. So now we begin. So once you have made your mind serviceable in that way, engage in the close applications of mindfulness. So I, I mentioned this little opening line earlier on, and that is the preceding chapter, as in the Bodhicharvatara, the preceding chapter is all on jhana, samadhi, shamatha. Right? So that's the place to make your mind serviceable, right? in a myriad of ways. And so the same is true here. It's, just, it's natural that the chapter that precedes the chapter on vipassana is on shamatha. And he says, once you've made your mind serviceable in that way. So that really cannot be overemphasized. You can study Madhyamaka, you can study all the wisdom teachings without having your, made mi your mind made serviceable by subduing the five obscurations. You can do it, but then will the, t the wisdom teachings sink in? Well, that's, that's an empirical question. It's not a dogma question. If it does, then great, congratulations, if somehow you can pull that one off. But the, the type of investigation here that is done, and it's not true only for Buddhism, it's true for other traditions as well. The type of investigation done here, unlike 
pretty much all scientific investigation. Again, each one has its strengths and limitations. So I'm not saying one's better than the other. But unlike all types of sci scientific investigation, you, the, the technology, of course, is your own mind. The technology you bring bit to bear to engage in the investigation is your own mind. So that's what needs to be refined. If you don't refine it, then you, you conceptually engage with material, you get a lot of bright ideas, but do they sink in? Do they transform your view? Do they transform the way you view reality? Do they sink in so deeply that they actually dispel the obscurations and afflictions of your mind? Scientific inquiry is not designed to do that. So we should never blame it for not doing something it was never designed to do. Scientific inquiry was designed to gain insight into the objective, physical, quantifiable world. And it's done a really, really good job. Does it provide eudaimonia? No, it was never designed to do that. Does it radically transform and purify the minds of the people investigated? No, it was never designed to do that. So it's like looking at a tractor and say, why, why, can't, you run, why can't you go as fast as a Maserati? Or why can't you fly like a butterfly? Well, wait a minute, it wasn't designed to do that. Right? So to make this, draw this distinction is not a criticism of science, but it is saying, look, everything has its limitations. If you want to build a Mack truck, don't go to Buddhist sutras. So there we are. So once you've made your mind serviceable in that way, then when you engage in the close applications of mindfulness, you'll not only gain insight, but the insights you gain will transform the mind that's gaining. Transform and liberate. That's the whole point. Okay? In that regard, I have already explained the close application of mindfulness to the body in the preceding discussion of impurity. So in the Buddha's own discourse, that the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a whole long section on really reflecting upon the impure aspects of the body to overcome the craving and the attachment, the clinging, the obsession with one's own and other's body out of craving and lust. So it, it's a skillful means. But he said, you know, I don't need to deal with that now because I've dealt with that earlier. Earlier, okay? And that was in the samadhi section for people who are really heavily bound by lust and craving, by sensual desire. It's a, it's a medicine. And you, you, if you actually take the medicine, it works. It does. But that's not where he's going now. So he said, I dealt with that already. So we're not, we don't have to deal with that now. So he goes right in. What he does commonly throughout the entire text is he's citing a lot of the classic Mahayana sutras. So that's what he does now. He says, the Dharma Sangiti Sutra presents a brief discussion of its divisions, the divisions of the close application of mindfulness of the body. So here's a quote from the sutra. Moreover, son of good family, a bodhisattva closely applies mindfulness to the body while contemplating. This body is simply a configuration of feet, toes, calves, thighs, chest, abdomen, navel, spine, heart, ribs, sides of the torso, shoulders, hands, forearms, upper arms, the region between the shoulder blades, wouldn't want to leave that out, neck, jaws, forehead, head, and skull. Just went through, okay, those are the basic components. They are assembled by the agent that arises from karma. They are assembled by the agent that arises from karma. And they are, they are the location of mental afflictions, derivative mental afflictions, speculations, and various ruminations, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. So now I think having spent five weeks here, you're, you're in a position to judge. Is that an exaggeration or maybe an underestimation? You mean... What about hundreds of, mine are up in the millions, I'm sorry, but I you know, have another order of magnitude. So there it is. So, so far, so there it is, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Many types of substances are brought together in it, including the hair on the head, body hair, nails, teeth, bones, 
skin, flesh, fatty secretions of the flesh, sinews, fat, oil, lymph, spleen, liver, urine, excrement, stomach, intestines, blood, phlegm, bile, pus, saliva, brain, and spinal fluid. Thus, it is a compilation of many substances. This whole term skanda, skanda, the aggregates, it has that absolute connotation. It's a, sometimes even actually called a sack. But more, more broadly speaking, it's a compilation. It's just an aggregation of just a whole bunch of parts in a skin sack. You know? It really puts romantic love in a very different light. <laughs> in this regard, one closely applies mindfulness with the question, what is called the body? So we're back to meaningful information, right? Meaningful information. And so meaningful information always has a reference. It's about something. It's a big term, intentional, in modern philosophy. Intentional means not just volitional. Doesn't mean doesn't mean that. Intentional means it's about something. It has a referent. I say flower. Which flower? Oh, that flower. So the word refers to something. So here we are. Nice, simple exercise. Really straightforward. And that is when you think body, the body or why not make it personal? My body. That's not just noise. That's a word with a referent. So this first major venturing into the realm of vipassana with respect to the body is saying, okay, here's a body. Here's a word I've used a lot. You're not, this is not some external import from, from the Orient, from Buddhism, from some mystical tradition. In any language, you probably have a word pretty close to my body. We already are using that term. It's part of our vocabulary, part of our way of thinking. Good. What's the referent of the term? Where's the target? What does it point to? What is it? So that's the question. What is called the body? When, one, when this is analyzed, one considers this body is like space. When you, again, you get the insider's view, which, again, we can only do with our own body. But you sit down and say, well, why should I look at it from the outside? Anybody can look at it from the outside. Miles can look at my, the front of my body and see pretty much what I do. So, but what he can't see, what nobody else can see from the outside is, I close my eyes, okay, what's, oh. That's private. I've got the insider's view. I'm inside the auditorium. You know, I'm getting the insider's view. So then where there you are. And Elizabeth pointed this out some days ago. You look in there. Okay, as you're doing so, th this is it. This, this is as good as it gets. I mean, a physician, of course, can look at the body and then, and then look at all those individual parts. The spleen, the hair, the gallbladder, and all of that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We, okay, we can do that. Um, but it's all looking from the outside. But now when we look from the inside, then consider, this body's like space. So one considers this body is like space and closely applies mindfulness to the body as being like space. One perceives everything to be like space. Bearing in mind, you remember this from earlier on, when we're, when we're closely applying mindfulness to the body, it's not just one's own body, is it? Internally, externally, internally, and externally, but in that category of the body are all physical phenomena, right? And so here we take the one physical body that we, for which we have the insider's view as well as the outsider's view. One may be a doctor who practices satipatthana and then does autopsies or does surgery and opens up, opens up bodies and looks inside and so forth. 
So we can look at the third-person perspective, the first person, but here's the one entity in the physical universe. We have the first-person perspective from the inside. And then consider this body, and then you look outside, and everything else is like space. Now he's assuming, of course, you've got some background here. This is not a be this is not the beginning chapter, and it's not a beginning text. This is for people who've been around the block for a while. And he's assuming, of course, you have some basis there in the fundamental teachings, the Shravakayana and so forth, because this is Bodhisattvayana. And so you've he's assuming, I think it's safe to say, safe to assume. He's assuming you've already have some sense of, you know, the three marks of existence. You've already looked into this. And so now you may be poised to see how all of these phenomena that congeal into entities that have attributes, they're actually emerging from space, dissolving back into space, and they consist of nothing other than space. Just like the appearances themselves. The appearances being the basis of designation, and then conceptual mind locks onto them, makes things, objectifies and subjectifies. But it's all happening in space, and there's nothing there other than space. One perceives everything to be like space in order to thoroughly fathom the body. Mindfulness is not closely applied to anything else. It is not focused on any other aspect, and it is not allowed to become distracted. Well, right there, that you can do that if and only if you've made your mind serviceable in the preceding way. That's what the, all the shamatha is about. Okay? But there's the first theme. And what I'm doing here, I'm, what I'd like to do is probably keep the meditation, which is coming fairly shortly, keep it pretty open for you to venture. So I'm front-loading the meditation, and recall, the first part is familiar now. We've, we've had it a number of times. Looking through conceptually. That is, when we, within, the, within conventional reality, does the body have a spleen, head, bones, and all that kind of thing? The answer is yes. So then, okay, go through it. Sweep through it that way. And you see, whoa, that sh sure is a lot of parts. And then there's the skin sack, the holding them all together. But again, where's the body to be found in that? I was thinking of the United Nations that it just, just met, just con uh, con uh, con they convened just recently. They may be still there, I don't know. But so these delegates, these representatives, ambassadors from nations all over the world convening in New York City. And so then the, the assembly, the United Nations Assembly, there's only one, right? one general assembly. It's not more than one, there's only one for the whole planet, one general assembly. It's one entity. It is, we say, singular, right? And then how many delegates, how many ambassadors, representatives, and so forth? And then who's the... You know, who, who's the chief of it? Who's the head of it? And so there it is. But exactly when has the United Nations convened? At what point can we say, oh, the assembly is now there? When does that take place? There are a lot of countries on the planet. So what, what if the ambassador of one of them just falls ill just before the General Assembly says, I'm sorry, I can't come. My apologies, but I'm, I'm sick. I'm in the hospital. Does that mean that the General Assembly doesn't happen? Because, you know, Mauritius, Mauritius didn't show up. And everybody said, ah, oh, shucks, Mauritius. And then go home. Can't play. You know, Mauritius didn't show up. You know? Or Iceland. What do we do without Iceland? No, no that's, that's not enough. They'll still, they'll still go. Well, how about Mauritius and Iceland can't show up? No, we still go. How about China doesn't show up? Yeah, we'll get by. <laughs> how about nobody from Europe shows up? What are you, boycotting? This is getting dodgy now. Is it still assembled or not? 
I mean, every single country in Europe all decided no, or they all got sick at the same time. So exactly how many do you need to say, okay, the General Assembly is there, United Nations is now in session. When is it in session? When is the United Nations there? When you say it's there. And when is it over? How many people have to leave the headquarters before you say, oh, the assembly is gone? When you say so. It's not one, it's not 99%, not 100%. It's exactly when you say so, right? Just like how much of your body can you have, can you have removed and still say this is a, da a damaged body, a damaged, but it's still a body, a body, a body, a body. How much of a house has to be destroyed before you say it's no longer a house? When you say so. When you say so. So it's interesting. So with the body, so with the General Assembly, so with the house, it comes into existence when we say so, but means that means there was nothing really from its own side that came into it and became it. I was thinking about that in my meditation just before here. Imagine that there's something that's really absolutely there. So we go back to Tsongkhapa's approach. Lock on to. What is it you're refuting? Oh, I know what that is. Something inherently existent by its own side that's independent of any conceptual designation. It's already there. So imagine there's something already there, which means it intrinsically, by its own nature, it already holds its own attributes. It has its attributes. It has a real lock on its attributes. It's inherently existent. It really is whatever you're going to say it is, right? But it's not a body, because it's going to turn into a body, but not yet. It's inherently existent, though. And then, causing additions happen, but this is an inherently, there's something really there, inherently bearing its own characteristics. How can that turn into something else? If it inherently bears its own, its own characteristics, that's it. It's stuck. How does it turn into something that it's not? By an act of volition? From its side? Okay, I'm going to get rid of some of my attributes? How could that happen? How could one thing ever turn into anything else if it's intrinsically holding on, like with a vice grip, like a fist, holding on to its own attributes? How could it ever transform into something that it's not? And if something is really there, inherently existent, how could it become something, how could it, you know, at the end, when it comes to time to die, how could it ever stop being itself? If it's inherently existent, this is the implication from Madhyamaka. If it's inherently existent, it's unchanging. The realization of impermanence itself is a slam-dunk proof. If you've really understood it, realization of impermanence immediately implies that it can't possibly be inherently existent, which means it can't possibly, in, if it were inherently existent, it couldn't possibly engage in any causal interaction. There'd be no give. It would be one like one isolated titanium billiard ball that's, that's absolute, it got absolute barriers and it just goes around the world like this. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. And I will not change. I will not change. I will not change. Because it can't. It's got a vice grip on all of its attributes. Which means it can't really be influenced by anything. That's inherent existence. It's a dead world. So this body, so there's the first theme of meditation. Really reflecting on holes and parts. And when does the whole come into existence? And then you look into a part of a whole. See, that's also a whole, as a spleen is a whole. Yet one spleen per body. But then the spleen is made of many, many cells. 
And so which of those cells is the spleen? And then you go to the, smell, the cell, that's made of many molecules. Good, but molecules made of many atoms. The atoms are made of elementary particles. The particles have different features, different attributes of their own, none of those attributes being identical to the elementary particle. So do the whole parts analysis. And then look for the referent as you're holding in mind my body. Then probe in. Look right in. Can you find the referent? Can you find the target of that word? And then in the absence of finding, you may come across space and then rest there. Closely apply mindfulness to the body as being like space. Perceive everything to be like space. And do so without distraction. Read a little bit more. Again, it is said. Here's another quote from a sutra. Oh, this is so interesting. And it's the same theme now, but right for the sutra now. This body has not come from the past. So this body, Graham's body, hasn't been around for forever, obviously. He's not that old. So there was a point at which it didn't exist. But then, did it come from the past before it existed? Where did it come from? This body has not come from the past. It's not an entity that flows through time. It does not, it, this entity, does not proceed into the future. It is not present in the past or the future. But of course, when you look for it right in the present moment, you come up with space. It is not present in the past or the future, otherwise it would arise from something unreal and erroneous. If you try to find something inherently existent from which it, ar inherently existent from which it arose, you're on a fool's errand. This body, this body, it is devoid of an agent, the CEO, the controller. True or not, check it out. It is devoid of an agent or one who, is, or one who experiences as some, again, we had this, remember, in the awareness of awareness. Probe inwards in the cognoscopy. When you're probing in, you have a sense of being the agent. When you probe in, you have a sense of simply being the observer right? with respect to the mind. And now he's doing the same thing with respect to the body. As you're attending closely to the body from any angle, if you see anything here that is the agent, something separate that is the agent in charge of the body. It is devoid of an agent or one who experiences it. It has no beginning, end or middle, no fundamental location. No master, no owner, and no possessor. It is designated by transient labels. The transient means adventitious. That is, the Italians could call it this, the French could call it this, the, the Germans would call it this, and so forth. They're just these adventitious labels called by various labels. It's called by these. It is designated by transient labels assemblage, body, enjoyment, abode, basis, dwelling, and sense base. Body has no essence. It arose from the semen and blood of one's father and mother. It is by nature impure, putrid and foul-smelling. It is troubled by the thieves of attachment, hatred and delusion, and by fear and despair. Closely applying mindfulness to it, thinking always, closely apply mindfulness to it, thinking always subject to disillusion, Separation, dispersion, and destruction. It is a container for a hundred thousand different diseases.
That should be enough. So in, this is medicine. This is medicine. Designed to overcome two things simultaneously that are both, both profoundly interrelated. One of these is attachment. Happens well, really at all ages. But attachment to the body, the clinging to the body, the thinking this is the very basis of my enjoyment. This is my conduit. This is my key to the good life. This is my key to be able to enjoy life. So, and I want it to look good. I want it to be attractive. I want it to, I want people to say, oh, you look so young. <laughs> That's actually quite a Western thing. It really is. <laughs> but, but to feel happy about that, I think it's really quite charming. Tibetans find that totally alien. They find it just totally weird. And maybe, maybe not attractive Tibetan women. That I don't know. But traditionally speaking, you know, if you're 80, you want to look 80. Then people say, boy, you look 80. I am 80. But if somebody comes to somebody who's 62 and say, oh, you look like you're only 40, then the response may, oh, I'm so sorry I, I deceived you. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, because I'm not 40 at all. I'm 62. I feel every moment of it. So the, the grasping, the clinging, the identification with the body, that's one element which can be so enormously distracting, so, so, such a magnet to carry us away from the cultivation of really what that which is meaningful. So there's one aspect, attachment. Attachment. So largely the attachment to the body that make, makes death so painful. Because you're, you know, as I, I remember hearing the, when the Lamrim first heard it, we can be so upset when we lose, you know, if you have, if you have, $100,000, and you lose $1,000. Somebody just steals it from you. Yeah. Steals, yeah. I don't like that. He just stole $1,000 from me. Yeah. Somebody steals $100,000. Oh. And somebody steals your car. Oh. Then you lose your family. Oh. And then you lose your homeland. You have to become a refugee. Oh. Then you lose your reputation. People think you're a total dope. Oh. One by one, you see, like, wow, this really hurts. One by one, losing everything you identify with, everything you think you have. But when you die, you lose it all at once. Everything you had, all your money, all your family, your reputation, everything you acquired, all like one guillotine coming down and saying, here's you, here's everything you have. <laughs> and the thing that's closest there is your own body. Oh, not my body. And it's ugly, and it's wrinkly, and it smells bad. Decomposing, practically. But it's my body. <laughs> Why do you hold on, hold on to that? But it's my body. So, so much suffering. By the attachment to the body. So that's one element. Trying to really relieve that. Loosen that up. And the other, of course, is the reification of the body. Let alone my body. Just the reification of the body. It's really there. It's really there. So the strength of the Pali Canon, the Theravada tradition in particular, the strength of the Shravakayana is to recognize this body is devoid of an owner, a controller, a, an, a substantial independent agent that's controlling it. Very clear on that. But it doesn't really challenge that much. Is the body really there as a physical entity from its own side? It's not a hot item. It's not, not strong, strongly emphasized. The emptiness of phenomena 
It's there, but you have to look for it. Whereas now that we're in Madhyamaka, front and central, it's not enough to realize this body is empty of the agent, the self, the controllers, so it's not enough. You must see the body itself is just as empty and no more empty. That's the interesting part. The body is just as empty of inherent existence as you are. And that doesn't, that doesn't sound true the first time we hear it. At least it didn't for me. No, I know I can't find myself. I look for myself. No, I just find mental phenomena, physical phenomena. Okay, I don't exist. I don't, I don't really exist. Yeah, okay, gotcha. But my body, give me a break. When I had a motorcycle accident, I drove, hit, hit, you know, had a head-on collision with a truck on my motorcycle. I can tell you my body existed. <laughs> it really existed, especially my left knee. That's the one that went into the grill. Bang! Man, don't talk to me. Talk to me about my left knee is not inherently existent. It's screaming at me. I hurt, therefore I am. You know. So the body, no matter what, the body, whether or not it has an intrinsic owner or not, the body is whoa. When the body is ill, when the body's injured, what do you think? Feel kind of inherently existent. I think that's my impression. You know? So that's a harder nut to crack, and that's exactly the nut that needs to be cracked. Look for the referent. Just as earlier, we look for the referent of I. This word that we use, and again, in all languages. I. Or use your own name, Alan, Shudun, Hans Petter, whoever it may be. Good, there's a term. It means something. It's not gibberish. What's the referent? If, it's, if it means something, what's, what's it pointing to? Good. That's on. Where'd you go? So the I being somewhat elusive, but we think the body, oh yeah. Put her there. Put her there. Her, her. Let's speak in a good deep voice. My body, my body, you know. 180, oh, 180 pounds of it. You know, that's something real. That's something real. Until you start looking, okay, but yeah, that's the kneecapping. You're, is that what you're referring to? Or you're coming from the inside and you're seeing earth, water, fire, air, and space. Or maybe you open your eyes and you see visual impression. Doggone it, I, I'm sure I left it here someplace. Where is that body? I'm sure it's here somewhere that body that has all of these attributes and has all of those parts. It's got to be here somewhere, I'm sure. Look for it. And if you don't find it, one final point here. This was so helpful, I can't remember which of my many wonderful teachers pointed out. Perhaps Geshe Rabdi. It's a really important point for this, exactly this. And that is in this room, some 40 people or so, if I ask I actually know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is, is Danny here? I, and I guess not. Okay. Or no, since I know he's not here, um, let's see somebody. Ilaria. Uh, uh, is Ilaria here? No, I guess not. No, no Ilaria's not here. Is that a not enough? I, I glanced around. I didn't see her. Right? Is that, shall I not, can I now be confident? Can I come to certainty? Since I asked the question, is Eladia here? I look around, don't see her. Can I be confident now that she's not here? Or could it be that I just didn't look carefully enough? And of course, she is here. And so we're talking about, let's take Eladia as an example. She's not that small, a little bit petite, but not too small. You, know? you can see her without a magnifying glass. So in this room, and the room has very contours, I think the, the wall's right behind this curtain. Within this room, you can imagine coming to an com absolutely conclusive certainty of whether or not, if you know who Eladia is and what she looks like, 
you could then scan through this room. If you went meticulously, you swept right through it. By the time you swept all the way through with your eyes wide open and knowing what to look for, if by the time you swept the whole room, you didn't find Ilaria, then you could say at the conclusion, I looked, and it's not only, this is the crucial point, it's not only that I couldn't find her, but I looked, and had she been there, I would have seen her, and I didn't. Therefore, she is not there. And that's knowledge. You have, this is, His Holiness Dalai Lama strongly emphasizes this as well. It's not just not finding something. It's recognizing it's not there. Not finding something isn't knowing something. Knowing that something's not there is knowing something. I know she's not here. Because were she here, I would have seen her. There's no way she could be in this room without my seeing her after I've scanned through all the rooms. But now that I've done so, and there is a total absence of, in this case, it would be Danny, because he's not here. And he's large enough, we can all see him easily, right? If you look for him, then you can say with certainty right now, Danny's not in the room. If he were here, one of us would see him. At least Danny back in the corner. He could be to your right, but you would see him. Somebody would see him. But since he is the kind of person that you would see and nobody sees him, then you have definitive knowledge, absence of Danny. And then you rest in that. If you scan through your body, internally in terms of the elements, you scan through your body conceptually, all the parts from the hair down to the soles of the feet. If the body's here, it's got to be someplace here. That's the room. And either the body is evenly distributed through all of it, or it's in part in one part or another. Or if you think it's outside, check, check it out. But here's the container. Here's the room. And if you can't find the body through the entirety of the room or anywhere individually in the room, the body isn't there. In which case you know the absence of an inherently existent body that exists independently of your mere conceptual designation. And then you rest in that spacious quality, that sheer absence, that spaciousness, the body of space. And then if you want to extend your application of mindfulness outwards, you may turn to any physical phenomenon that you like, from a galaxy to an elementary particle. And it's the same story. It's the same story. You look for it. You can look for it in terms of sheer appearances. Sheer appearances are not a galaxy or an elementary particle or you can look in terms of parts-whole analysis, or you can investigate it in terms of its factors of origination and factors of dissolution. Exactly when did it come into being? Independently, objectively, by its own nature, or simply when it's designated? And when did it stop being? Inherently, objectively, so we simply have to witness it, or when we say so? And if it's merely when we say so, then it was never there from its own side in the first place. It never came into existence from its own place. It was never there from its own place. It never dissolves from its own place. It's not there at all. It's space. And rest in that spaciousness, the emptiness of inherent nature. So let's focus on the body. Let's jump in. First of all, let's take a breather. As if we are about to set out on an expedition, which can be quite challenging at times. 
First of all, retreat to your base camp, to a refuge, a place of peace and quiet, to collect yourself, to set your body, speech, and mind at ease. Calm the turbulence of the mind, make it serviceable. at your own pace. Pose the question to yourself, as Shantideva suggests. What is it that is called the body? What is the referent? Scan through the body part by part, conceptually, attending to components that are conventionally real. They, they are there. But asking, are you the body? Are you the body? What is the referent of the term, my body?
your mind becomes vague, a bit spaced out. Just bring to mind what comes to mind when you think my body. Does nothing come to mind or something? An image? And holding that, whatever it may be, holding that in mind, your sense of what your body is, Return to experience and see if you can find that. Anywhere within the skin or outside. Having scanned carefully, meticulously, through the entire space where your body should be. If you find nothing there, objectively real, that you can identify as this is my body, if that body is not to be found, and you have scanned thoroughly, then rest in that not finding, in that knowing its absence. And rest without distraction in that knowing of the absence of a real body.
then with your eyes open or shut as you wish. Adopt the insider's view. Moment, moment by moment arising of earth, water, fire, and air. Is there anything in here that warrants the name, that deserves the name? This is my body. And if there is nothing there that really is your body, and as Shantideva suggests, actually view your body as being like space and rest in that awareness without distraction.
Manaso. There are questions awaiting here, but I think some comments might be helpful to kind of expand and also contextualize this practice and the importance of this practice of gaining some realization of the emptiness of physical phenomena, starting with the center of our own universe, our own bodies. A point very important for Vajrayana, and that is to engage in Vajrayana practice, really any of the practices, but for example, stage of generation, stage of completion, it's simply inadequate to realize only the emptiness of your own personal identity, but to leave everything else pretty much untouched. So I, I exist you know, only as a convention, but of course this is a real world. Uh, if that's where you are, then you really cannot practice state regeneration. Or if you do, uh, it will be, it'll be just a game. It will be a child's play. It will not be authentic or profound transformative practice. Because bear in mind, in Vajrayana practice, you're transmuting not only your sense of personal identity, but you're transmuting everything, body, speech, and mind, but that includes the body. You're actually transmuting your body, right? And this is by the power of visualization in large part. Going into manual override in terms of conceptual designation, right? But for that, you must realize the emptiness of your own body. If you're still grasping on the notion that you have a real body here composed of molecules, cells, and so forth, and it's really there, and then while without challenging that, without seeing the emptiness of that, if that remains unchallenged, you're still reifying your own body, and then you pretend to dissolve into emptiness, but you know it's just a little visualization exercise, and then you visualize yourself as, let's say, Vajrayagini or whatever, or as Vajrasattva, It's a bit vulgar, but pardon me, but I think we need to be a little bit sometimes struck. It's like having a dog turd and, and dipping it in chocolate. <laughs> it looks like it's chocolate on the outside. It's not. It's a dog turd covered in chocolate. It's the same old impure sack of stuff of the human body, one impure substance after another, thinly veiled as Vajrasattva, Vajrayogini, Tara, Avalokiteshvara, and so forth. But it's, it's, it's silly. It's silly. So it's absolutely imperative to realize the emptiness not only your own, on your, of your own body, but the entire environment. Because you're never simply transmuting or generating pure vision of your own body, but it has to be the entire environment. So that means the entire environment and everybody in it. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. His Holiness was asked when he was invited to Greece in 1979 asked about preliminary practices, the Vajrasattva, the Guru Yoga, and so forth and so on, uh, because a small group of people had been taught, okay, this is the first thing. If you want to practice Tibetan Buddhism, okay, here you go. Do 100,000. Hit the deck, you know. Do 100,000 prostrations. Go for it. Now. And the Lama took off. He's a wonderful Lama. But the people knew almost nothing about Buddhism because the only books on Tibetan Buddhism in Greek at that time were books by Lopsang Rampa. That was it. And so they didn't have a clue, because he was taking them, if Buddhism is this way, he's taking them that or that way, you know, look that. And so these people were quite frustrated. I mean, they're trying to visualize Mount Meru, but don't quite know where that fits on the globe, you know. And so His Holiness made a very strong point. These preliminary practices, they are not preliminary to the practice of Buddha Dharma. They're never intended as such. If people teach them that way, well then, they've decontextualized the whole of Adriana. 
And once again, if you're one of those incredibly sharp faculty people, maybe that'll do it. And you just go right off and realize stage of generation completion, become a Buddha in one lifetime. Muzzle tough. But if you're not there, and you don't even know the Four Noble Truths, you haven't developed renunciation and bodhicitta, developed some shamatha, some realization of emptiness, and you're going directly to guru yoga and vajrasattva and so forth, talk about decontextualization. These people were lost, totally lost. So he said the real preliminary practices for Vajrayana are the Shravakayana and the Mahayana, the six perfections, the three, you know, the four noble truths and so forth. And then once you have that foundation, you really have you know, good theoretical understanding and you've really ex- had some experience in the Shravakayana, in the Bodhisattva-yana, guided the Bodhisattva way of life, things like that. Some understanding of emptiness, some Bodhicitta and so forth. Okay, now there's a whole level of purification that is specifically for Vajrayana. Now there we go. Now you really understand what guru yoga is. It's not just idolizing your guru or having blind faith in your guru. Your guru is infallible. Why? Because he's your guru. That's religious fundamentalism. That's not guru yoga. That's blind faith. So, quite strong point. So for authentic practice, your foundation, your real preliminaries, the Four Noble Truths, practices like the Four Applications, the Shamatha Four Immeasurables, and so forth, developing that basis, then the Six Perfections, returning more deeply to to shamatha, realizing, realization of emptiness. And then from that perspective, you have a couple of routes to go. And one is the classic developmental approach. It's awesome. It's, it's produced re- superb results for so long. But to my mind, it's no question. It's an authentic path. And that is from this foundation. Now go ahead and do the preliminaries. Good, do that. See the signs of purification. See for yourself that this is really purifying. And not just that you've made it through 100,000. Because a computer could do that, or a robot could do that. And so with that preparation, then dissolve all phenomena into emptiness. Bearing in mind that the kind of appearances we have arising to us right now, by the time we're talking about Vajrayana, we really have to put this in the Buddhist context. You can't just secular, you can't, I think there's no way to secularize Vajrayana. You can secularize Shamatha. You can secularize the four measurables. You don't need a Buddhist worldview. Vajrayana, I'm sorry, that's, you have to be Buddhist for that. It's within Buddhist worldview. So there we go. Well, within Buddhist worldview, the type of appearances that are arising to us, the appearances here of Tanyapura, of, of Phuket, the appearances of other people, how do they appear to us? How, do our own, how, do, how does our own body appear to us? And so forth. These appearances are coming from where? Generated by karma. Generated by karma. Lessons all schools of Buddhism. Theravada, all schools of Buddhism. Generated by karma. The appearances are arising the seeds are sown, and now the seeds are germinating, they're maturing, they're ripening, and we're getting this flow. Illness, good health, bad health, adversity, felicity. There's the flow of karma, rising up to meet us. Karma, karma, karma. Nobody's doing it to us, not God, not Buddha, not devils, not anybody else. Karma, maturing, maturing. Those are appearances, all of them empty of inherent nature. So if we lock onto them, and we put them into a grid, a conceptual grid, with a samsaric mind, the ordinary dualistic mind, then superimposing a familiar grid of conceptual designations, then we live in the world that we call our universe, right? which now seems to be an absolutely real, out there, inherently existent, as we are really in here. Well, of course, if you realized emptiness, then you see, although there are those appearances, the appearances themselves are empty, emptiness taking on form, the form themselves being empty. That's what karma is dishing up. It's a whole bunch of empty appearances. But they're still arising. So now in Vajrayana practice, when you have received empowerment and so forth, and you dissolve everything into emptiness, 
then by the power of your samadhi, you're dissolving everything in emptiness. If you have realization of emptiness, all the better. Reali dissolve all appearances into emptiness. But now when you come out and you open your eyes, your appearances powered by karma are still going to be there. Right? They don't suddenly vanish just because you had an empowerment. Right? And what do you do? And these are the appearances driven by impure karma from plesha and so forth and so on in past lives. So what do you do? Since you realize that they are mere empty appearances, you go into manual override. It's manual override. And that used to say, I see you, and I'm going to overpower you by the power of my samadhi. If you don't have samadhi, your state of regeneration practice is going to be really half-baked. Because you have this massive flow of, of appearances from karma, and then you go, eek, 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 a little tiny, little tiny visualization. I'm sorry, that's going to be, it's going to be one voice shouted out by a mob. You know, but if you have samadhi, then you have these appearances arising, and then you, you meet like two waves coming, and you overwhelm the sensory appearances with mental appearances, visualization, mental appearances of pure perception. You do this, it's not that dog turd covered with chocolate. You see, it's an emptiness. They're empty appearances. There's nothing being covered over. They're just appearances, and you overwhelm them. You override them with pure perception your best approximation, a visualization. And then you engage by the power of imagination, by the power of faith, by the power of realization of emptiness, and so forth. Then you generate, and this is hard work, a lot easier if you've achieved shamatha. You generate a whole environment, you generate all the people within that environment, viewing them with pure perception, viewing yourself with pure perception and divine pride. And in which case, then you're taking the fruition as the path that incredibly brilliant but very pr and very profound maneuver to do so. And if you continue in that practice and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, but then by the power of your bodhicitta, your realization of emptiness, your power of visualization, all of these together, they can really totally override, override, overwhelm the appearances that are arising simply by way of karma. And your environment for you then gradually shifts from an impure realm in the desire realm, the Kamadatu. Where you are, wherever you happen to be, you could be in Detroit, you can be in Buenos Aires, you can be anywhere you could like. An ugly city, a beautiful, beautiful place in nature, anywhere. And because you've realized the emptiness, that everything around you is sheer space, it's like you're an artist, and your canvas is space. And although there are appearances there, you override them, by the power of visualization, with pure vision, you override them with the stage of generation, generating the mandala. And then where you are, step by step, transforms into a pure land. So within Mahayana Buddhism, there are a lot of references to pure lands. The pure lands of the different directions, Sukhavati or Dewachen of Amitabha, in the west. In the west, of course, west from where? From the North Pole? Where's west from the North Pole? Exactly. I, thought, I think it's only south. If you're, in, if you're right on the top of the North Pole and you take one step in any direction, you just move south. So I guess if you're living on the North Pole, you cannot go to Sukhavati. Because <laughs> it's either north or south. There's no other direction, right? And so clearly that's silly. And Dujum Lingba, Navajra Essence, is very explicit about this. Don't take, that, you know, don't, get, don't take this too literally now. The West, East, and you know, all that kind of business. Conventionally, okay, in a manner of speaking. But wherever you are, if you have transformed, transmuted in this kind of spiritual al alchemy, transmuted not only your own identity, your body, but your environment, 
then where you are, that becomes for you Sukhavati, and you are in a pure realm, where everybody around you might be in a middle-class neighborhood or an ugly city or in the beauty of nature. That's where they are. And they're your next-door neighbor. Where you are is downtown Sukhavati. <laughs> Actually, the center of Sukhavati. You're right in the center of the mandala. Right? But if and only if you realize emptiness. Otherwise, again, it's just superimposition. It's just an overlay, a covering, a quilt, the chocolate coating. Now, with Dzogchen, it's so interesting. In the classic procedure of Dujum Lingba. So again, I, I, don't, I have nothing to... Uh, Dzogchen is so, so profound. For me to even say, this is my view of it, it would just be trivial. It would be silly. It would be wasting your time. So let's just go, you know, bypass surgery. Right around Alan Wallace. Let's just go to Dujum Lingba. I'll try to simply be an interpreter for him. And that is in this really streamlined path. Shamatha, make your mind serviceable. Vipassana, realize the emptiness of all phenomena. Got that one? Good. Okay, now we are. Now we go right into Rikpa with no visualization at all. Now you just break through. You break through the substrate. You break through to, the, to pristine awareness. And then naturally, as you're the locus of your awareness, your perspective, the, your vantage point, where you're looking from, as you break through the conventional mind, the relative mind, your continuum of substrate consciousness, let alone your coarse mind, as you break through even the substrate consciousness to Rikpa, this ground awareness, and from that perspective, as it becomes clearer and clearer, more and more unveiled, then without any visualization at all, pure perception arises spontaneously. Your own identity as Buddha arises spontaneously. And you're in a pure land, wherever you are, spontaneously, because that is how things are from Rikpa's perspective all pure, equally pure. Tak nyam, tak nyam. Tak pure, nyam equal. Equally pure in all directions, from that perspective. No visualization. You do a bypass. You, you can do both, of course, and many, many people do. Stage of generation completion and Dzogchen. But Dujong Lima says, if you want an unelaborated, fa- uh, unel- unelaborated path, simple to the point, direct, because life is short, this is sufficient. And that is you just drop into Rikpa. And then everything displays itself spontaneously. Everything's quite profound. But we see how also whatever path one is following, at least within the Buddhist context, uh, the realization of emptiness of the body is not trivial. Really, really important. Okay? Here's one. We've not heard one for a while. Uh, we have only five minutes, sorry, but I hope that was useful. And because I would like to see that we're not decontextualizing anything here. It's not just Ravakayana by itself. That's what they do in Southeast Asia by putting them in a pocket. But in Tibet, we practice Vajrayana. In classical India, they did the Bodhisattva All of a piece. All of a piece. Right? So here's a question from Kathy. To what extent is a program of regular study of Buddhist principles and philosophy, for example, mind, mental factors, tenets, majyamaka, supportive to shamatha practice? And vice versa, shamatha supportive to study. To move beyond shamatha, eighth level, doesn't one need a solid understanding of mind and emptiness, etc.? I'll answer the... Well, it's a, very, it's a very good question. And I'll give Padmasambhava's answer and also Pinjanarmuch's answer. Since my perspective really doesn't count. You know? <laughs> I was really thinking about it. I mean, just really short. But if you ask anybody in the physics community, well, what do you think about Alan Wallace's perspective on that? <laughs> they would say, who's he? <laughs> and the answer would be nobody. You know? And then if you go to any of the Nyingma masters, 
and say, well, what do you think about Alan Wallace's perspective on Dzogchen? They say, who's he? Is he Tuku, Rinpoche? I've never heard of him. And it means nobody. And then go to any of the great Galupa Geshe's, Jadra Rinpoche and so forth. What do you think about Alan Wallace's perspective? Say, who's he? I've heard of him, yeah, but... So really, I'm nobody all the way across. I'm equally nobody in physics, Nyingma, Theravada. It isn't even Ripali, so I'm really totally nobody there. So I think I'm I'm a homogenous at least. For Theravada, I'm nobody. For Galupa, nobody. Nyingma, nobody. And physics and science, I'm not even a scientist, so I'm nobody. So at least there's something you can count on here. I'm not an authority for anything at all, okay? But if I can pass on the teachings of these sublime beings without distortion, then I think, okay, that's good enough. So, Padmasambhava, natural liberation, beginning of a section on Chamata, which is right towards, right after the preliminary practices. And he says, there are two routes. One is, first gain the view, study, hearing and reflection, hearing and reflection. By studying well, become a Kembo, become a Geshe, whatever. But study well, reflect well, really learn the Buddhist worldview. First learn the view. And then experience. That's one way. That's one way. Quite common in, in traditional Tibet. Quite common. 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 35 years of training. One of my Geshe's, Mongolian Geshe, 35 years from the beginning of his Geshe training until he graduated. 35 years. And it took him one year to hike from Buryat, from Mongolia down to Hlaza, to get to school. One year to hike. So it was one year to get to school, and then 35 years before he graduated. When he graduated, he went, he, he went on a pilgrimage. <laughs> he was ready to get out of there. Like, oh, no more teachers, no more books. You know, he was out of there. So in any case, there's one route of really learn well, hearing, thinking, and then meditation. But it's not the only route. And Penjin Rinpoche says the same thing. This is Penjin Losan Chukigansen, the tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama, author of this great text on Mahamudra. He says it's exactly the same thing. There's two routes. One is the theory first, and then the experience. Meditation, the meditation, right? But Padmasambhava, and oh, just by the way, Penjin Rinpoche is regarded as an emanation of Padmasambhava. Oh, and by the way, Atisha is regarded as a speech emanation of Padmasambhava. All in the same family, you know? So... The Benjamin Rinpoche and Padmasambhava say, and on the other hand, there's the other approach. And that is, rather than having the meditation emerge out of the view, rather go directly to the meditation and let the view emerge out of the meditation. And that's the other route. So these are my two of the greatest masters in Tibet. One 17th century, one 8th century. So it's good to see the flexibility. It's one of the things I really love about Tibetan Buddhism, about this tradition, that there are so many avenues, so many variations, so that you really, like w walking into a, a clothing store and you find, oh, there's so many things, I'm sure I can find something that really fits perfectly, you know? And so to answer the question, do you need to really understand, to have studied well nature of mind and emptiness before you can move beyond the eighth stage of shamatha? The answer is no, unequivocally, no question about it, no. Um, Hindus, Christians, a wide variety of people can achieve shamatha. Many of them certainly have, without ever studying Buddhist worldview, any of it all, don't even believe in it necessarily. So, no, it's, it's quite clear. Uh, one must be free of the, the five obscurations. One must have those inner prerequisites. Remember, contentment, few desires, and so forth. But none of those say, oh, you have to have a good understanding of Buddhist psychology, let alone emptiness. You don't have to realize emptiness. That's for sure. Could it be helpful? So that, there's the answer. Could you, if you had pure motivation, good renunciation, pure ethics, contentment, few desires, few activities, few concerns, 
completely eliminating rumination, living, practicing in a conducive environment with support of companions and a good teacher. Could you achieve shamatha? Yes, the answer is yes. And then the view comes out of that. Then you will understand the reference, the meanings of Buddha psychology from your own laboratory. You say, oh, those are, those are mental factors. That's consciousness. That's impermanence, and so forth and so on. You'll have the Buddhism start flowing out of you, out of your own experience. So the view can emerge from your meditation. And Padmasambhava said, that's my approach. That's what I'm presenting here, and that's your liberation, is go for the meditation first and let the view emerge out of that. It's like those people in the Pali Canon who came to the Buddha requesting teachings. He gave them teachings. They, they realized nirvana, became stream enters, realized nirvana, and after they realized nirvana, they turned to the Buddha and said, I take refuge in you. They became Buddhist after they became stream enters. And for very good reason. If somebody's just led you to nirvana, you should take refuge in them. That's a good refuge. <laughs> they know it now, not because they've had really good teachings that were intellectually engaging and stood up to analysis and so forth, but they tasted nirvana. Anybody who tasted, led, led you to nirvana must be a good doctor, a great physician. So the two are complementary, and then it's a matter of temperament, inclination, and so forth. So I'll end with a story, one of my favorite stories from my own life. It was on one of my private, uh, private inter uh, interviews, audiences with Kepti Tijanamuchi, one of the two tutors of His Holiness Dalai Lama. Incredible being. So I can't even remember the context of the conversation, but I remember sitting, it was just one on one, he's sitting there, and he, uh, again, I remember nothing of the context, just this one like, explanation he gave to me. Explanation was imagine three people who are very hungry. Want some food. And the first one, they bring out, really, like a Tibetan picnic. I mean, lots of really good, yummy food. A lot of variety. Whole picnic. Tibetan love picnics. So a nice variety. Got momo, the chapale, you have this, you have that. Some pakse, and all kinds of good stuff, you know. And the person is a nice balanced diet. The person chows down, and when having finished the whole picnic, the whole gourmet meal, the person is full, so that was good, yum. that was good, yum. I'm, I'm full, that's good, good meal, thank you. Jolly good. Elaborate, maybe 11 courses, who knows. Second person come in, just as hungry. And the person gets, here's some nice samba, here's some cheese, here's some nice veggies, a bit of dried, some dried peaches. Okay. Chow's down at the end of the meal. I'm full, that was really good. Thank you. Third person comes in, just as hungry as the other person. Here's some samba, here's your butter tea, chow down. If you need to eat enough samba and butter tea, you do get full, I guarantee. I guarantee. Samba's really filling but there it is, and it's full of vi vitamins. It's actually good food. And with the bu Tibetan butter tea, it has some fat in it. It has some protein, good grain, barley. So you chow down when you finished, you're full. Each one got fully nourished, got a good meal. One elaborate, one medium, you know, papa bear, mama bear, baby bear, kind of, kind of the same theme. He said in a similar fashion, among authentic practitioners, some come to the Dharma, and they just come with an enormous appetite. They want to, st they want to study the Abhisamalankara and the Pramavatika and the Madhyamakavatara and the Vinaya Sutra and the Abhidhamma Kosha and they want to study all the four classes of Tantra and they, they want to study it all. They just, they just want to drink the whole ocean of Dharma in. And they study and they study and by the time they've studied and then they put it all into practice. They do just what Tsongkhapa said. Acquire great learning and then synthesize that all into your daily practice. So all of that learning is put into your practice. It's not something else. It's all poured into your practice. You practice day and night and you achieve enlightenment. That's one approach. One can say it's the Geishi approach, perhaps. 
But another person will come in and say, life is short. Give me some of the core teachings. Give me like Lamrim. Give me Bodhicharvatara. Give me the 37 practices of the Buddha. Give me some Lojong. Give me a nice quintessential. Give me the Heart Sutra. Give me the core stuff. Life is short and I really want to practice. This person gets a moderate meal and learns it well and then practices it daily and night. That person achieves enlightenment. Same result. Exactly the same result. Third person coming in says, life is really short. You're the Lama. I'm the student. Fill me up. Give me teachings that I can put into practice now. You, you teach, I practice. I'm going to just rely on your oral teachings. Give me everything I need, but give me straight. I have no time for elaboration. That person just following the guru's oral guidance, step by step by step, achieves perfect enlightenment. All three achieve the same result. So then which one? Which approach? And then that's our choice. That's our choice. And none of them is better than the other. Otherwise, we'd have to say Tsongkhapa was better than Milarepa. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. And anybody, nobody in his right mind says that Milarepa was better than Tsongkhapa. That's ridiculous. It's foolishness. One writes poetry and touches the hearts of millions of people. And the other writes 18 volumes of brilliant dharma and touches the lives of millions of people. In very different ways, but all leading together. So, the answer is they're complementary. But whether you start with a lot of teaching and go to the practice or just a little bit and go for the practice and it gives rise to great insight. Either way is good. Okay? Oh, yeah. Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow.